You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back to the program, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan, where it is currently the 29th of August, 2012. So for all of you stateside and everywhere else around the world that you might be tuning in tonight, thank you once again for investing your mind time in Corbett Report Radio. And I hope to make good use of it tonight, as we have a stacked deck for the program. Uh, we're not going to bring you one, but two guests. Why not? A, uh, a, a plenty of guests. A, uh, just an embarrassing riches of, of information we're going to be bringing you tonight from an excellent new website that I hope people will be checking out. It's called The Last Defense. It's at thelastdefense2012.tumblr.com. Of course, the link to that will be in the show notes for tonight's episode at corbettreport.com. And here we have a couple of guys out in Korea who are keeping a, a tab on all sorts of news and, uh, and information from an alternative perspective. And there's quite a wide range of information available here. So if you turn to The Last Defense uh, right now, you'll see such uh, stories as uh, bioengineering breakthrough, electronic circuits that are integrated with your skin, uh, the key to media's hidden codes, the top 13 Illuminati bloodlines by Fritz Springmeier, U.S. love affair with murderous dictators and hate for democracy, as I say, a wide range of news and information. So let's bring them up on the program. Tonight we're joined by Hanul Naavi from uh, The Last Defense and Mike B- uh, Bol- Bolosky. <laughs> Sorry about that. I get tongue-tied at times, but it's good to have you guys here. So let's, uh, let's introduce you to the listeners. First, uh, Hanul. Yes. Okay. Um, I go by Hononavi, of course. That's a pseudonym. But um, essentially, a uh, long time ago, um, I was working on a PhD here in South Korea, and they introduced me to Middle East and African politics. And through that, I first encountered a story about the Saudi Arabian um, ambassador that was supposedly attacked by, um, what was it, uh, the Islamic Republican Guard. And there was this ridiculous story over uh, many different um, websites where they were talking about how he was going through a Mexican drug cartel. When I heard about this and I realized that Saudi Arabia and Iran are basically competitors in the Middle Eastern um, region, I started to question more and more and more about what was going on. So I wrote this long letter and I sent it out to a few friends and it basically detailed the issues surrounding um, if there is regional war within the Middle East. And um, after this occurred, I went ahead and um, didn't feel like I got enough feedback, so I wanted to start blogging as a way of kind of expressing self and as a way of getting the information out there to people who may be interested or may not be able to um, have access to this information otherwise. So uh, later on, I uh, met Michael through a mutual friend, and we both started, uh, list, you know, he had been listening to InfoWars for a long period of time as well as doing um, media through his, um, through NBC. And we became friends and we started talking about, hey, let's get together, let's do a website, let's um, start getting this information out there. And so we started producing articles. And then after that, we started linking um, the website to other articles. And then we started getting podcasts. And then after a while, we had our first guest, who was uh, Dr. Webster Grifflin, uh, Grifflin Tarpley. Sorry. Griffin Tarpley, yep. 
And ever since then, it's been like a daily feat. Um, we go on, we Twitter, we post things to the blog, we try to get podcasts periodically with whatever guests that we can. And um, as far as well, me... Uh, quite an electric, uh, eclectic mix of uh, information there, so again, I hope people will check it out. But we're coming up against the break, so when we come back, we'll introduce you to Mike Belosky, who is also involved here, and uh, we'll start going into some of the information that's coming out of uh, not only Korea, but of course around the world that is making news in the alternative media. So hang on right there. We'll be right back after this break. All right, welcome back to the program, friends. You are tuned into Corbett Report Radio here on the Republic Broadcasting Network. And once again tonight, we're talking to Mike Belosky and Hanuel Navi of The Last Defense. Once again, that's thelastdefense2012.tumblr.com. And uh, they're also on Twitter at The Last Defense, uh, Facebook, YouTube, you name it, they've got it. So I will put those links in the show notes once again at corbettreport.com slash radio for tonight's episode. But let's uh, let's turn uh, the mic over to Mike. Uh, just before the break, we were hearing about Hanul and how he got started with this website. But uh, Mike, how about yourself? How did you get involved with this? Well, I started as a, well, I want to say journalism, communications in college, Seton Hall, New Jersey. And from there, I had some good professors. I took a media crit- criticism class. I sort of had a feeling that we were not getting the whole truth from mainstream media. I got that feeling very on very early on and then at about 2005 a good friend of mine in new york city showed me the documentary loose change second edition about 9-11 and that was sort of like what i would call the uh jumping down the rabbit hole so to speak of um alternative media and suddenly things like um the government putting or i say the government corporations putting chemicals in our food or water food and water started to make sense. Uh, Suddenly, things like the notion of false flag terrorism and the Hegelian dialect started to make sense. And, and, you know, all from there is history. And now we're here. Um, We got our website. And, I mean, you know what it's all about. You do the same kind of topics. And, by the way, thank you for, um, you know, linking, uh, mentioning our website and linking to it because we are a growing website where we've only just started a few months ago. And, yeah, yeah, this is a relatively new website, but it is, I mean, it's uh, got a lot of information on it already, so my hat's off to you for making this happen, and uh, I just, I, I didn't know about the podcast yet, I'd, I hadn't seen that yet, so I'm glad to see that yeah. you're starting with that, too. Yeah, thank you. This is our first interview outside of The Last Defense 2012. We've done interviews with our own guests, but this is our first time being the guestee. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing about it. But you guys are there in Korea, in and around Seoul. Um, how did you get there? Uh, what what brought you to Korea, Hanul? Oh, right. I, th- okay. I threw that part out of the story. I met my now Korean wife in New York City. So I she see. was studying English and uh, fashion design over there. And so she moved back in 2008 early. Then I moved and we got married and now we have a son and yeah, yeah, this is our apartment. <laughs> so obviously well, that's we how I'm get... here in Japan. I've got my Japanese wife. So, uh, yeah. how about you? Oh, uh, I also wanted to say thanks so much for um, having us on the show as well. Um, no problem. Yeah, it means a lot to us, and um, we want to just do our best to try to help you out as much as possible, and vice versa. You know. So, um, yeah, how I got here, I wanted to teach um, English with LG and Samsung. So, um, I got offered a job through my old university uh, back in the U.S. 
And um, I was actually working kind of like as a adjunct professor there. And um, once I got over here, I just basically took all of my belongings, sold two-thirds of them, and just packed up, moved over to South Korea, started in central South Korea, and then eventually moved to Seoul. So then, after that, moved to China for six months, came back here to start school, and then just decided to, you know, go from there. Um, so it's been kind of a wild ride. <laughs> I guess so. Well, uh, I'm glad you're both here, and I'm glad you uh, are, started this website. So let's start getting into some of the issues that are affecting, of course, not just Korea, but around the world. But uh, one that I'd like to talk about is that something that I've been covering, at least tangentially in some of my work recently, is the Asia-Pacific and some of the militarization that's going on here generally. And, of course, they're in Korea, right next to uh, North Korea and the, the demilitarized zone there. I'm sure you're familiar with some of the militarization that's going on, specifically when it comes to unmanned aerial vehicles, the drones that are becoming more and more common, unfortunately, for people back home stateside, as well as uh, in other theaters of operations around the world, including Korea. And, Mike, I understand you had your own personal experience of uh, your of the drones there in Korea. Yeah, it was about a month ago. In fact, thanks to the wonders of Facebook, I can narrow it down to the day and hour. It was July 26th, about 10, 10 p.m. Me and my in-laws and my wife and everybody were finishing up dinner at a restaurant not far from here. And my at, at one point, my sister-in-law, she was outside, and she comes running in all wide-eyed. She's like, UFOs, UFOs, UFOs. And I'm like, ah, all right, you know, let's take a look. So I go outside in the parking lot, and I look up over the north sky, which appears to be the DMZ. I mentioned in the break that we're probably 30 miles, maybe, from the DMZ. And I saw these three flashing lights. They were, uh, unfortunately, it's too dark. They were too small for video or pictures, effective video pictures. But, yeah, there's three flashing lights. They were blinking. They were going about 30 or 40 or so miles east, and then they would do this impressive U-turn and go back the other way. And it, it was an apparent surveillance pattern, which is what you would expect from a drone since one of the primary uses of drones is surveillance. So I, I immediately, my first thought was those were drones. I didn't think they were little green men. But I think I did know there, it's a common, I think, my, I think it's a common mistake. People see UFOs and they ought, a lot of people still think, oh, it's little green men, it's little green men. And I think there's, people underestimate the technology that the military has um, I got two examples here. The SR-71 Blackbird, it's a 48-year-old plane. They would have us believe that's the fastest manned airplane. That might be true. I tend to doubt it. Almost a half-century old. Um, stealth jets were Nazi technology. They've been around for a really, really long time. There was uh, a famous UFO sighting a few years ago. It was about two years ago. Amateur astronomers trapped the Air Force X-37B space plane. It was, a, it was on a classified mission, according to New York Daily News, and this was essentially a small version of the drone version of the space shuttle. And my point in mentioning all these various um, crafts is that I think most UFO sightings are, in fact, military technology, and people don't realize it. I think you're right. I, I don't think the aliens are kind enough to put the flashing uh, lights on their, on yeah. their craft yeah. for you. Yeah, another thing. <laughs> but absolutely. Well, so there's the, the brush with the uh, the personal experience. But now, as I understand it, you guys have been doing some research on the drones uh, generally there in Korea and in elsewhere, I assume. So so let's talk a little bit about what types of technology are being deployed there. Yes. Okay, Um uh, would you like for me to cover drones, like in general, what kinds exist and sure, like the major companies? There, right. 
Okay, we have companies like Lockheed and Martin, Northrop Grumman, um, BAE Systems, Boeing. They're all working to create their own drone systems. Um, General Atomics is probably the largest manufacturer of drones, and they're the ones that manufacture Predator drones, which have been used um, all over Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, and in some places in Pakistan. And um, after that, we have AeroVironment. They're the largest manufacturer of small UAVs. So you have many of those different corporations that are contracting, getting contracted by, like, the United States government, DARPA. Um, there are also um, drones that exist solely for the ground. You have a company called Boston Dynamics, which makes several different models of drones, which are actually pretty terrifying because they are very reminiscent of the Terminator saga. Like, one of the things that I thought about was how is the Terminator series of movies going to be a real-life reality force in the future? Because there's a series that we write sometimes, Truth is Stranger Than Fiction, and it shows about how that's possible. Um, they have certain models like Big Dog, Pet Man, Cheetah, and then they use swarm drones as well. Big Dog is basically a bi- it's a quadrupedal uh, robot, which is used to carry supplies, and they can also weaponize it later on. Uh, you have Pet Man, which is a large humanoid figure. And it's able to use its own gyroscopic functions to walk upstairs, go anywhere, run, do push-ups, anything. And then we have Cheetah. It can run about 18 miles an hour. So that's one of their newest models in Boston Dynamics. And then they have some swarm drones that work. They use an algorithm to kind of um, get many different drones to work together as would um, a swarm of bees or a swarm of birds, flock of birds, whatever. So those are just a few examples of the type of technology they have. Exactly right. And for people who don't understand just how creepy this technology can be, I would uh, point them in the direction of a video called A Swarm of Nano Quadrotors on YouTube. And if you watch that, I mean, it's just chilling to watch these uh, these drone robots flying in formation and doing these uh, bizarre patterns and things. And, and just the sound they make even is quite eerie. And uh, the only hardening thing about it is that you see comment after comment in the YouTube comment section talking about, oh, Skynet has arrived. <laughs> this is Skynet. You know, everyone understands at a certain level that this is something quite creepy in a way that's difficult to put your finger on but perhaps let's let's try articulating that what what is the concern with these types of drone technologies well there's um i also wanted to mention there is an actual skynet it's a british um communications defense system and it's in its fifth generation so nice name (laughs) it's almost like they did it on purpose but um some of the major concerns with drones that we have, we have the issue of privacy and surveillance. Uh, Mike, did you want to touch up on that? Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's like, for example, I got these three articles here. All right, um, let me just find it in my notes. L.A. Times, drones are being used by the police forces. Um, obviously, that can be good if they use it properly, but, you know, again, who, who knows these days what they're really going to use it for. I got Wired Magazine, 64 drone bases being used to monitor national parks. Again, this, this could be a good thing um, if they're finding pollution or if they're finding resources. It can also, again, be used to infringe on our rights. And I got BBC here, drones used to um, surveil agriculture. Now, same story. It could be good. It could be bad. I'm sure we've all heard the stories about big agriculture companies 
trying to use any excuse they can to um, weed out their small farm competition. So again, it, it could be used um, in good ways or bad ways. But I, I just gave you three mainstream news articles, or three na- mainstream news sources that did stories about drones being used domestically. And again, it all depends on how they use them. So if, well, if that's exactly them. right. It's like any technology; it can be used for good or bad, and it's a question of how it's being used. But when it's implemented by the Department of Homeland Security, I'm sure we can assume there are some nefarious purposes behind it. On that note, let's take another short break. We'll be right back again, talking to the Last Defense 2012.tumblr.com. All right, welcome back to the broadcast, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan. And today, from Korea, we are joined by Hanul Naavi and Mike Boloski of The Last Defense. So once again, I hope you will check out their blog and some of the information they're covering there. Tonight, we're talking about a number of things, but we're talking at the moment about drones and uh, how they're playing into the military strategy of the United States and increasingly other countries as well as Britain and other countries start to get in on this game. So let's uh, let's continue talking about that subject. And um, Mike was talking about a personal experience that he had with the drones there near Seoul, uh, Korea, uh, just a, a last month. And I understand you were able to narrow down what type of or what drone it was or what, where it was coming from. So, so let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, I can't prove it, but as I mentioned in the previous segment, I saw three flashing white lights over the DMZ. And so I did my research. I assumed they were drones right away. And what I found was in the Stars and Stripes newspaper, they reported three what they call Global Hawks. These are primarily surveillance drones. They were sent to Guam in late 2010 to, to the DMZ not to the DMZ, for the DMZ surveillance. So they launch from Guam, they go over to the DMZ and they do their surveillance and then they go back and they're also used for other areas in this part of Asia. So, And I, I also wanted to give a little backstory to that. Please do, but I, before I you do, that, I just wanted to clarify why the U.S. is using Guam. I mean, sure, surely they have places they can stage from in Korea itself. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's where this little backstory kind of explains it. What happened was the U.S. is aggressively pushing the sale of these drones to the ROK government, and this is contrary to previous reports. Now, what I just mentioned that the U.S. is pushing the sales, that was released from U.S. diplomatic cables, according to the Asia Times. And what was previously being reported by U.S. and Korean media alike was that Korea was pushing for the sale. They wanted to purchase, and it was the U.S. that was reluctant because they didn't want their state secrets to get out to North Korea or wherever. And I think this is just my speculation, but I think what was going on is Korea kind of called bluff on the U.S. They, I think the U.S. wanted these drones to be used over North Korea regardless of if South Korea purchased them or not. And South Korea, realizing this, said, no, nah, we're, we're not going to buy them. The U.S. wanted 940 billion won. That's probably... I can't do the conversion off the top of my head. That's got to be over $900 billion for four drones. And it was too much money. So anyway, now South Korea's got the best of both worlds because the U.S. is using them in North Korea. And South Korea didn't have to pay for them. They obviously don't have to maintain and run them. So they won out in that deal. 
Yeah, funny how that works, I guess. Uh, but uh, good, good job if you can get it for the ROK, I suppose. Uh, Hanul, let's start talking about some of the issues surrounding this and, and some of the U.S. Uh, policies about drones. Okay. Um, well, one of the things that um, are happening, you know, with the Bush administration, they had the um, they had certain issues about detaining um, insurgents and torture. Barack Obama kind of wanted to roll that back. For his presidential campaign, he wanted to stress that he was different than Bush. And he tried to push forth the policy that he was going to be more humane, more, um, you know, caring about the soldiers, as well as not using Guantanamo Bay to uh, detain soldiers that were captured in war. But what happened, due to um, congressional bickering, they decided to leave Guantanamo open. But the problems that um, Barack Obama runs into when he uses these drones, first off, is that he's routinized. He's basically made it a daily policy to go out and create a hit list against um, insurgents or people who he speculates to be insurgents without due process. Now, um, of course, you know, they had the issue with Osama bin Laden. They had the issue with uh, al Arawaki. Is that correct? And um, he was killed by a drone strike, but he was an American citizen. So what happened is that this completely destroyed all of his um, due process. So what's happening in the Obama administration is, unlike the Bush administration, he is pushing more for a kill-not-capture policy, which basically he can kill anyone he wants as long as they are a part of this list. It's almost like the no-fly zone list, except it's more like a mafioso-style hitman list. So those are just one of the things that um, we should touch upon. Also... One of the bigger issues is that Iran recently hacked one of the drones and was able to bring it down. And this happened somewhere in the um, North Khorasan province of Iran. And so the UN, uh, the UN um, ambassador to, um, I mean, the Iranian ambassador to the UN, sorry, he told um, the United Nations that he wanted to almost bring the United States to court so that they could um, try them for using these drones to violate their airspace and their sovereignty. So after bringing down their drone, it was hacked by um, the Iranian Republican Guard. And then Barack Obama politely asks for it back. He's like, uh, can we have our drone back? That would be very nice. And Iran says, okay, sure. And then they send them a 124th model of the plane. <laughs> that's, uh, <clears throat> that's a bit cheeky, but uh, I understand where it's coming from. But uh, yes, and now they're they're shopping that technology out to China and Russia, from what reports say. So um, it does it is reminiscent of uh, during the height of the Cold War and the U two uh, that was shot down with Gary Powers. And uh, there's been a lot of behind the scenes uh, talk about how that was staged as well. So so this might might in fact be part of a, a staged operation. And uh, interestingly enough, they had to even admit the fact that they were using these drones over over Iran, which is something that they had not admitted to that point. They were saying, oh, we, it was over, a, it was a routine reconnaissance flight over Afghanistan, and somehow Iran managed to get it. But of course it was over Iran, so that brings up all sorts of international issues. But let's leave it there. Let's come back talking about, once again, drones and all sorts of other things that are being covered at The Last Defense right after these messages. 
I'm sick of this damn noise, the paranoid android poised at the edge of the precipice. Sanity is gradually becoming my nemesis. Like Alright friends, we're back here on Corbett Report Radio once again for this Tuesday night edition of the broadcast, and we are talking to two men in Korea who are running a blog called The Last Defense. I hope you will check it out. And it's uh, as I say, got a lot of information on a wide variety of subjects. Tonight we're talking about the, the drone situation, and uh, as it's developing, we've talked about some of the issues surrounding the use of these drones, and uh, the, even the recent bringing down of a drone in Iran uh, that was supposedly conducting routine surveillance, but uh, Iran was able to hack into it and bring it down, which brings up one of the uh, the things that I've covered on this subject in the past, which is my fear that this can be used for the next false flag attack, because it does bring in a lot of the different memes that we've seen uh, being used recently with the, the, the cyber security. It also brings in the idea of the, the, the drones being used uh, to set off some sort of confrontation with Iran or with another country, who knows. And uh, unfortunately, that only plays into the hands of the people who are trying to set up some sort of confrontation. So it is something we definitely have to keep our eye on. But there are many other issues to consider here too. So uh, Mike Canula, wherever you want, guys want to pick up the conversation here. Um, I, I'll make a comment about co- the collateral damage issue. I have here the Pakistan's Dawn newspaper reports that the Pakistani government claims that there's 140 civilians killed for every one, quote, alleged terrorist. Now, given exaggeration, or maybe that's not exaggerated, who knows, we don't, we don't know what the criteria is that they determine a terrorist and a civilian. So, um, Hanul, the previous segment, had mentioned the sort of infamous Terror, terror Tuesdays reported by the New York Times where Obama and his gang will get together and look at photos of various alleged terrorists and decide who dies and who lives and who knows what uh, checks and balances exist or don't exist in that process. So anyway, it's a very disturbing statistic and to complement that disturbing, disturbing statistic, I have here the Department of Homeland Security term double tap. This refers to the practice of attacking of a secondary attack after the initial attack. The drone will come in and blow up the uh, initial compound or whatever and then they'll come in again after people are trying to rescue people or help and save people, and they'll do a secondary attack, killing those people as well, striking you know true terror into anybody who's thinking about trying to help. So it's a very and this was reported by the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Absolutely, and it's a reprehensible uh, policy. And I would suggest people check out uh, Gareth Porter was recently on the Boiling Frogs uh, podcast at boilingfrogspost.com. And he was talking about the White House's assertion that civilian deaths due to these uh, targeted strikes, these drone strikes, are few to zero. And they get away with saying that because they have arbitrarily defined any male of combat age, I guess 18 or older, that are caught in these uh, crosshairs are arbitrarily defined as militants, which is just a phrase they use that can mean anything. And in this case, it just means they were unlucky enough to be killed by a drone strike and happen to be of combat age. So again, they they, they just play with the words in order to come up with these arbitrary numbers that seem to indicate, oh, no civilians are ever killed in these strikes, but uh, but what does it actually mean? So there's definitely some disturbing issues there. Uh, Hanul, anything else that you want to bring to this? Okay, I wanted to take the... I wanted to take a look at this document by the Fellowship of Reconciliation. It was mentioned. It was entitled Convenient 
killing, armed drones, and the PlayStation mentality. One of the biggest detriment, uh, one major detriment rather, to using drones is that there's a disconnect between the actual insurgent and the security force going after them. So you have a guy who's pretty much locked in a cockpit, very much like any video game system you would play in an arcade, and they're going after an insurgent. So what there is, since there is a disconnect, there is no real attention to whether or not this is a real insurgent, and then there's no attention to whether or not you are going to harm people within the vicinity of this insurgent. So when you do these targeted attacks and killing, um, these people that they're going after, the U.S. government especially, and Britain, they are going after people, and they're destroying lives, they're destroying families, and there's really not much of a conscience about it. It's just, it destroys the conscience of the soldier who's actually piloting these aircraft. There was one specific mention in here, it was a case study, um, about the Awal family. And in there they mention, they say, on January 5th, around noon, an Israeli Defense Force drone launched a missile at members of the Awal family, uh, Alal family, who were on the roof of their home. The missile killed a young boy, Moon Mao uh, Awal. Uh, he was 10 years old, and he injured his brother and sister. And their mother told them this specific incident. We were sitting on the roof. It was cool and there was good weather. After five minutes, I told my son, I will sit in the sun, and I went to the other end of the roof and sat down. Suddenly, there was a powerful explosion. The roof was covered in white dust and smoke. I saw him on his bicycle. His legs were crushed. His chest had tiny holes in it, and blood was pouring from them. I carried him crying. I ran to the stairway. He was breathing his last breath. I talked to him, saying, it's all right, my dear. So... This is the mother's account of what happens, and then the soldier has his own disconnect from that. He doesn't realize that this is why ang- uh, countries are becoming angry at the United States. And in fact, what it's doing is it's breeding more mistrust between the countries that America is supposedly trying to save and um, what their actual intention is, which is basically a hard policy against Iran to curb regional influence. It's one of the, one of the major things they're trying to do within the region. It's telling all the other countries, you know, please comply with us. We're going to use these drones. It creates an environment of fear for everyone's daily lives. Uh, that's uh, that's pretty much it. It is a disconnect that happens, obviously, between the people who are pulling the trigger, which is really more like a keyboard joystick type of uh, operation than the people who are actually experiencing this on the ground. So I think we can understand that uh, that the drones are being deployed in ways that are counterproductive for for any type of military strategy. They're being deployed in ways that are killing people needlessly. They're being deployed in ways that are uh, violating people's rights when they're employed for reconnaissance uh, within the United States, for example, on the the U.S.'s own citizens. Uh, There's so many downsides to this but let's let's take the uh, the the devil's advocate argument people are going to argue that uh, that it is just a technology and it can be used for good or or bad and there's no way to stop the technological process i mean no one's going to stop working on drones or trying to develop these technologies so what is it that uh, that we are actually arguing for here is there something we can posit f- uh, positively to uh, to counteract what we're arguing against here well the positive is that it keeps um U.S. Um, soldiers from actually going in and fighting and giving up their lives. And the purpose behind drones is to reduce or to limit the amount of liabilities that there are within the within a war conflict or within a, a major skirmish. So the drones are useful in that sense for the United States, but I think diplomatically it sends a message that we can bully any country 
And we don't have to put our people's lives at risk because we have this wonderful technology. And the problem with that is that it's a temporary technology that other countries are developing at this moment. Pakistan has decided to develop its first drone. Um, also, China has started reverse engineering theirs. Iran has confiscated one of the drones from the United States after it hacked it. Um, and so what you see is a proliferation of a new type of weapons technology, which is going to, in the long run, change the face of the battlefield. So I would say, yeah, it, it reduces the amount of lives that are killed in times of war and in times of conflict, but it doesn't really stop the long-term ramifications of this technology. Mike, what's your take on it? Um, I would add, I, I mentioned those three articles before by the Times and Wired Magazine and BBC. They can be used domestically, and presumably they can be used for good things. Um, for example, for the police, they could be used for like a search and rescue or to find a fugitive. Um, Wired Magazine talks about them monitoring the national parks, so they could find, say, pollution or um, something wrong with the parks. And again, BBC talked about them being used for agriculture. Um, the BBC article seemed to imply that they were using the spy on agriculture, but in any case, we could assume they could be used to monitor the qual the, the those huge fields they have in the Midwest. Obviously, you can't walk around those. You gotta, you know, these drones could probably help in, in a number of ways domestically. But again, it's I think the solution is. Um, media shows like our own, you know, informing the public and in terms of the government, they got to make some checks and balances and, you know, have some kind of a extra drone uh, department, department of drones that monitors these things and makes sure they're being used properly. Well, that would be the uh, the ideal, but again, I don't think there are angels in government that are going to be watching over <laughs> this, unfortunately. So, uh, so absolutely, it is something that people have to keep their eye on and have to be aware of, at least the possibility. And uh, when you look up in the sky and see f- those flashing lights, uh, perhaps before you think of little green men, you should think about the uh, the types of technologies they have up their sleeve and are increasingly deploying on the, on the peoples of uh, of the of the United States and everywhere else around the world. All right, uh, we're running out of time here, and I want to get to some of the other issues that you guys are working on for the website. So let's open up the conversation. Uh, Mike, Hanul, anything you guys want to bring up that you're working on? Okay, uh, I mentioned uh, we, had, we had discussed recently about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, I wanted to touch a little bit on that. Um, it's a very interesting issue. It kind of works very similar to NAFTA, where you have many different um, partner countries negotiating with the United States. And uh, in the Asia-Pacific region, what this is going to do is to try to curtail the um, economic might of China. So it is rising as the number two power. It is the number two power in the world now. It is slowly becoming the number one power as they have three billion in gold reserves. So the United States is trying to work with smaller allies. And um, the nine countries that are involved in this are, let's see, uh, New Zealand, Australia, Brunei, Chile, Malaysia, Peru, Singapore, and Vietnam. And Canada and, and Mexico just recently signed on. Yeah, and Japan is in the works as well. Mm-hmm. So um, this is going to be a very unprecedented event. What this does, the problem with the TPP is that it starts to create what is known as corporate law, what I would like to define as corporate law, rather than national sovereign law. It bypasses all of the different um, domestic laws for trade. And what it does is it puts a stifling strain on copyright 
policies. So we're having a lot of different um, issues with SOPA, PIPA, ACTA, you know, that failed in the in Congress and in Senate and to be passed in other areas in Parliament and other countries. But now we have this particular partnership, which is going to start to try to surmount that or to bypass that. So um, what did you have? What did you um, think of this? Do you what, what's going on in Japan as far as that? Uh, it's causing a lot of concern for farmers and others who are concerned about the way this is going to affect uh, their basically their lifestyle and their subsidies, etc., from the government here. But I think, uh, the, obviously, the copyright issue is one that inflames people's passions. And it's interesting, from my perspective, that people can get worked up and, and motivated to do something when it's a SOPA or a PIPA. But when it's one of these international trade agreements that are behind closed doors, we don't even know what's precisely in the text of this agreement, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. people just don't e- aren't even aware of it to, to protest it, let alone to uh, actually get involved and start the uh, internet blackout and everything that we saw for SOPA and PIPA. So I think it is a way of trying to take this in the back door and hardwire it into international law without people having any say in the matter whatsoever. It's quite disturbing. How about people in Absolutely. Korea? What's the, what's the uh, awareness of this issue in Korea? Awareness of it? Well, honestly, from personal experience, um, a lot of people are upset about also sub- subsidies for farming. And um, recently, I th- wasn't it uh, Chevy and General Motors? Weren't they also... Um, they signed FTA agreements with the with the Korean government, and people were protesting heavily about this during the time of uh, Occupy Seoul. So there was a separate um, protest in Gwangman Square where they um, protested that event. Um, according to a document from tppwatch.files.wordpress.com, they say that it targets specific things here. Uh, stronger res- restrictions on foreign investments, tobacco control laws, restrictions on sale and manufacture of GMO and labeling of GM foods, which is a huge issue because many times in Japan and in Korea, we have GMOs that could possibly be linked to the high autism rates. Uh, South Korea has one of the world's highest autism rates. So this can also affect and come into play later on. Well, theoretically, also- GMO foods aren't uh, aren't imported to Japan, but... I don't quite believe that. <laughs> yeah, I think they're um, uh, secretly passing it in the back door, just the same way they did with the American beef industry back in 2008. So uh, people protested that in um, Nyongdong as well. And um, also, they also talk about the ability to reverse privatizations in the future, strong regulations for mining, what they call parallel importing, especially for the mu- for music and computer programs intellectual pro- uh, property protection and digital media, and money flows in and out of the country. So when you have countries like Japan and you have countries like South Korea, people are very upset that it could privatize more and more national um, companies. South Korea is a very protective country of their domestic um, economy. So oftentimes with a lot of their cars, about 90% of them are usually uh, Daewoo or... Uh, Samsung Renault cars or Hyundai or Kia. So when you have this inflow of new products in, it actually hurts the domestic market because they're dependent on exports for their economy to thrive because they don't really have resources, but they have technological know-how. Mike, anything you want to add to this? Um, Sure, about general topics that we cover on The Last Defense 2012. I I tend to focus on, I know this is a little separate topic, uh, eugenics. 
the the idea that the people who run our government and various industries do uh, control what goes into our food and our water and uh, if you want to get a little bit more far farther out there, what goes up in the sky? <laughs> I'm sure you've heard about the uh, calm trails and the chemicals mixed with the jet fuel. But um, yeah, I for one example, aspartame. And if you come to Korea, you'll probably try makgeolli. Yeah, makgeolli. It's a Korean rice wine. And my God, the poor Koreans, they drink this stuff all the time. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with drinking a lot here and there. But the store brands of makgeolli have aspartame in it. And it's very ironic because this drink is advertised as a health food. And frankly, it is healthy if you get it homemade and non-pasteurized but um, or sterilized, I should say. But... In any case, most most of the Makgeolli people drink is the store brand and has aspartame. And aspartame is in thousands of products across the Korea and U.S. and I imagine it's probably in Japan as well. Unfortunately so, and uh, I always have to keep an eye out for that uh, because it is in so many different products. And uh, they recently tried to change their name again so that people wouldn't know what it is, mm-hmm. but I can't remember what ridiculous name they came up with. Oh. They're constantly yep. doing things like that, and uh, obviously they wouldn't have to do that if it was the uh, the wonderful, healthy, perfectly safe product that they like to advertise it as. But we all know that it got approved with uh, Donald Rumsfeld sitting on the board of Searle mm, yep. and uh, fudging the <laughs> numbers right. from the tests and everything. So unfortunately, exactly right, the uh, eugenics-obsessed elite truly believe themselves to be better than the rest of us, and their genes deserve to be passed on while ours deserve to be weeded out of the gene pool. It is definitely something to uh, keep your eye on, so I'm glad that you are covering that very important issue. Well, let's take another short break. We'll be back to wrap things up, once again talking to uh, Hanul Naavi and Mike Belosky of The Last Defense. Once again, the link will be on the show notes uh, for tonight's episode, corporatereport.com slash radio. We'll be back right after this. All right, friends, here we are back in the fat last few minutes of tonight's broadcast of Corporate Report Radio, talking once again to Hanul Navi and Mike Belosky of The Last Defense, thelastdefense2012.tumblr.com, and we have one caller on the line, so let's go to your calls. Let's go to Steve in West Virginia. Steve, thanks for calling in tonight. Uh, back to the drone issue. Um, from my understanding, the drone that Iran brought down was brought down by superior technology to anything that we know that, that our government has. Uh, they have gravitational control. They took gravitational control of it and brought it down intact. Uh, if you look into uh, uh, Keshe Foundation, that's K-E-S-H-E Foundation, um, Mehran Keshe, uh, he's an Iranian by birth, but he's living in Belgium, and uh, uh, he has released his technology to all the governments of the world uh, to help to bring in peace. And uh, this is the type, and Iran is one of the countries that has taken up taken up the uh, technology and is developing it. 
Well, Steve, Are you aware I, of this? I, I have not. I will check into that. I, I haven't heard that. I have heard a lot of speculation about what really happened with the drone, and uh, there's a, a post up on Danger Room that uh, Iran probably didn't hack CIA stealth drone that questions the narrative that it was hacked into necessarily, but uh, I haven't heard that before. I will check into it, so thank you for the call. We are back on the drone issue. Mike, Hanwell, anything else you guys would like to say to wrap up on the drones? Um, I want to make a comment on what he just said. Um, Venezuela recently made a drone, and they did it with Russia, China, and Iran together. So when we say uh, Venezuela did this or Iran did that, it's really a, a group effort over there. So it is conceivable that they do have you know, more advanced technologies than we give them credit for, because it's not just Iran, it's not just Venezuela. And one more thing, um, uh, I, I have, I, I just want to make a comment here, like a general observation. We have the NSA who spies on our emails and our phone calls. We have GPS and RFID technology being used to monitor our location. Essentially, the, the government or um, establishment, they know who we are, where we are, and now they're going to have 30,000 drones, according to the Federal Aviation Administration. So it's, it's sort of like, it's sort of disturbing. It's kind of like a checkmate situation, if you think about it. If they get these things in the air, they know who we are, where we are. I mean, what do you guys think about that? It's it's very disturbing for me. <laughs> I think it's incredibly disturbing. Oh, he's Go ahead call? and handle. Oh, okay. Um. Uh, target practice is what I take the that for. <laughs> oh, and hopefully it won't turn into that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, but you know. Okay, Hanu, uh, well, do you want to wrap up? We only have about twenty seconds left. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, I just want to say that you know, as far as them using drones across the United States, it's going to be very detrimental. It's going to completely ruin the trust of the of the United States and the people. It's going to create another disconnect between government and the governed. And um, I think that it's going to take a lot of us to start considering the ramifications, the problems that this type of technology presents when they start flying over. They're trying to make it seem as if it's harmless at this point because they're using them for uh, multipurpose uses. But in the end, the Predator drones, the Reaper drones, all of the different drones pre presented by Boeing and the ones by Boston Dynamics, it's looking to quell um, dissent because recently the Pentagon was given a budget to start working with Boston Dynamics for martial law. So that's something you should uh, definitely look at as well. Absolutely, and we tend to think of drones as things flying around in the skies, but of course, as you've pointed out, they're also on the on the ground and all, all such sorts of other ways they're working on deploying these technologies. Okay, we're fresh out of time, so guys, we're going to have to leave it there. Hanul, Mike, thank you so much for being on the program tonight. Mm, thank thank you. you so much. And thank you to all of you out there for listening in. Once again, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and the link to their website will be up on my website shortly after the program airs. We'll be back with you tomorrow night, same time, same channel. So until then, thank you all for listening, and take care.